1: Great Voices in Opera and Song with Chris Gaffney.
2: And thanks to Chris for Great Voices. And the time is just turning over to four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett and I'll be here as usual until 5.30. Today we'll be hearing from historian and author Brian McKinlay, with two book reviews. He'll be speaking about a, a book about the Soviet yeah. Union, and that's Chris Coffey, and a book about the US. Human rights activist Jack Smith looking at the, the lack of humanity in the world today. Australian Greens member Bob Muntz. He's been to the Philippines talking with the, the Greens over there. But first, let's have it for Mr Kevin Healy and see what sort of a week he's had.
0: A week, journalist. The when Infrastructure True Blue Aussie told us congestion was strangling our cities, costing the great corporates who make life better for all of us billions. And the solution lies in freeing up lots more road space, lots more freeways and road widenings, and handing all our roads over to the private sector so they can be efficient. And most of them are. At about 3am, they just become a bit less efficient when people actually want to use them. The solution was announced when Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses launched the infrastructure report. We need a national debate on how to stop our cities becoming more clogged. Obviously, including more public transport, Tiny. Obviously, public transport has no role in this debate. Caring employers in the liquefied natural gas industry have pointed to major impediments to investment with, hard as it is to believe, inflexible industrial relations topping the list. In this case, and doesn't this show what unreasonable expectations and barriers poor caring employers have to face, an entitlement attitude in the workforce? Well, we've come to expect an entitlement attitude with dull bludgers and welfare cheats and lazy pensioners and rorting fraudster mothers and women. But now society is confronted with lazy, avaricious workers so presumptuous in their unreasonable entitlement expectations, they probably even argue they're entitled to being paid at the end of the week, for instance. Probably even expect their besieged caring employers to provide expensive safety on the job. How caring employers must ponder how anyone could have a sense of entitlement. But that probably explains why the riffraff are the riffraff. On caring resource industry employers copying it from all directions, the firm unwavering commitment required by a great leader was evident from Big Supremo Tiny. I think there's no doubt we should hold an inquiry into the iron ore industry. Uh, Why should we have an inquiry, Tiny? I never said we should have an inquiry. Why would we hold an inquiry? So we shouldn't have one. Look, didn't you hear me? Clearly we should have an inquiry. Uh, And what should it look at? Nothing. There is no case for having an inquiry. It's great to have a thinker running the show in Canberra, isn't it? And the issue has certainly put our old mate Twitty on a learning curve. He's learned the resources he digs up belong to the people. Twitty has twigged, and therefore it's the government's responsibility to create an atmosphere in which Twitty can make a killing, mostly by handing him the public purse. So given it belongs to the people, you have a responsibility to pay a resources tax, Twitty. That would be an impediment to competition. The government should pay us for digging up the resources which otherwise would just lie there. We're we're doing the country a favour. On competition, the government has a responsibility to inquire into why other companies are using the great market forces ingredient of competition to make me uncompetitive. But, Twitty, isn't that the essence of the system you love? Not when they do it to me! The big P1 news of the week, where else but the Lord Rupert of Whopping Sin. Big picky of the ubiquitous Jen modelling this summer fashion for the great department store for which she is a salesperson. Then the vital news, Jen is shooting as they say the spring summer collection at a western true Aussie beach. It's always hard shooting the summer fashion range in our winter, but it's so exciting to be shooting here. And this coastline is quintessentially Australian. Jen bubbled. Good point, Jen, but just wonder if you could tell us which bit of the True Blue Aussie coastline is not quintessentially True Blue Aussie, given that it's actually in wait for it, Jen, True Blue Aussie. But then the P1 scoop really moved into the hard news, biggest event in the whole world today area. The Troubler-Wazzy next top model host said the striking setting complemented this season's trends. One of my favourite looks for summer, and I'd advise us to write this down, noted listener, because we don't want to be stuck in, well, imagine the embarrassment at being seen in last year's looks, is the reminiscence trend which has a romantic, relaxed 70s feel in a muted summer colour palette of mint green, dusty pink and white. Mmm, can't wait to see it, and well-rehearsed, Jen. The Great Department Store will be so proud of you. The story then moved into even more hard-hitting territory by telling us which new elite, tray-chic, trays-expensive, celebrity-favourite labels will join the Great Department Store's stable this year. That nonsense, some might say, free ad, but we wouldn't, of course, passes in Lord Rupert territory as news... And given the other P1 story was about our old mate Cardinal George Appalling, or Pell Potter as some call him, and the appalling sex abuse, it was obvious what the headline over the usual suspect Lord Rupert Hack-Lackey columnist giant thought for the day referred to. Church's silence just indefensible. Well, no, no, not a word about sex abuse. He attacked the churches for not attacking Islam. Well, the Christian churches. And having said Islam menaces the freedoms of women, gays and Christians, showing he supports women, gays and Christians, he then had a second piece next to that attacking women journalists who ask difficult questions to his business class party mates. No, ladies, he concludes... High-profile women should not whinge when they too are judged on their demerits. It's weak and it's sexist. Doesn't the mind boggle at what he might have grew up with if he didn't support the freedom of women? Speaking of, Big Supremo Tiny Tiny has joined George Appalling in calling for Ireland to be excommunicated from Rome, which shouldn't be too difficult because there's quite a geographical and marine gap. Tiney has also banned the true media from playing any Cole Porter, George Gershwin et al song which mentions the word gay. We can't be gay when sin and lasciviousness is taking over God's world. There are tears in heaven today. On the positive side, Tidy said government members could have a conscience vote if same-sex marriage hit the floor of parliament again, which is a bit of a chance. They will be free to vote according to my conscience. The Who Said the Laws and Ass Award of the Week to the Indonesia in Other People's Business Constitutional Court for dismissing an appeal by Mayuran and Sukumaran and Andrew Chan on the sensible legal grounds that they had been executed. No appearance, Your Worship, probably better than proceeding and finding they had a case, uh, unexecute them. On logic and the Constitution, top marks to caring business class Senator Corey Byrne Idiots, who is leading an inquiry into hell's all food. Uh, It's called halal, Corey. It causes people to impose hell on all of us. Eat hell's all food and you'll become an instant terrorist. Uh, Will you also look at kosher food, Corey, which is really the same thing? Kosher food inspires peace and love thy neighbour. That's why Zion loves its neighbours so much. It occupies more and more of their land so it can bring them the peace their food inspires. And I know you've been diverted by this campaign about Islam and Arab terrorism, Corey, but see a majority overwhelmingly support our indigenous people, the first people being recognized in the Constitution. I I totally oppose that because I oppose anything that brings racism into this great country that encourages division. Corey did say he was a constitutional conservative. But I'm not sure he needed to say it. That it was absolutely necessary to spill it out. On logic and Corey, Corey and the government are working to make life a little safer for all of us. Holding predetermined inquiries into these long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden-working, and iron environmental groups, which abuse their tax deductions tax status by taking up—can't believe it—environmental issues. Who would have thought? New top. <coughs> Sorry, top cop, Graham Bashing, said public order was one of the two top priorities facing the forces of law and order. Emphasis on the order bit, obviously. Well, don't get too excited about the law bit while testing your baton and checking the strength of your boots. But Graham said people had a right to protest and rally, but they must do it in an orderly way that does not disrupt the community. It is important that protests be totally, you know, like, ineffective. Under my leadership, we will, like, you know, respect the right to totally, uh, like, ineffective, like, protest. And if a protest looks like being effective, Graham, it's Chief Commissioner to you, not Graham. Oh, you've changed your name. Don't be a like, smartass. I've got my like eye on you. But if it looks like, you know, being, you know, like, effective, we will step in to enforce the, like, you know, law bit, to protect, you know, public order, like, bit, like. Thank you, Chief Commissioner. Pleasure, like. Oh, and finally, it could be divine revelation, God feeling our evil necessitates divine intervention, because after all, the Bible did talk about... Ashton to Ashton and bulldust to bulldust. Bulldust. What an appropriate way to end the week that was. Good afternoon.
2: And thanks to Mr Kevin Healy for his week that was. Let's turn now to historian and author Brian McKinlay.
3: Today, Jan, I'm going to look at two books and two countries, what the books say about each society in the present day. One of them is a book about the United States, And one of them is a book about Russia, particularly what I'd call late Soviet Russia. One of them is a book called The Republicans' War on Science. That's a current American book. And the other one is a series of books, but one in particular called The Zhivago File, looking at the famous controversy over the famous novel, Dr Zhivago. Many of your listeners will have read the novel. I think just about everyone has one time or another seen the film, which was an epic three and a half hour view of Russian history. The film was a very good reproduction of the basis of the novel. Now that doesn't always happen, does it? Somehow Hollywood and other people get it wrong, and you see a film and you think, "Oh, that was a poor reproduction of the novel." But I've recently reread Doctor Zhivago and um, and watched the film. Um, My wife and I watched it recently. Both have. Pretty similar and very good stuff. Recently, there's been a very interesting book by a Russian and an American author working together, both academics. The book is called The Zhivago File. Would I be right in thinking that just about everyone at some time or other has encountered Dr. Zhivago? Would that be true of you?
2: We actually had a Dr. Shivago cafe across the road ah, here at Smith Street at one stage.
3: Oh, I didn't realize that. Well, the novel was written by Boris Pastanak. And the Zhivago file looks at the writing of the novel and at all the controversy that accompanied it. I was one of those who read the novel way back in the 1960s, I think, and then saw the film a decade later. Pasternak was an interesting character, and much of the novel, actually, when you read the Zhivago File book I've just spoken of, much of the novel is autobiographical, because Pasternak wasn't a novelist. Uh, That comes as a surprise when you think uh, that he's seen as one of the great Russian literary figures along with people like Tolstoy or Dostoevsky. But nevertheless, he wasn't a novelist in his life. Where he made a living, and a very good one in the 1920s and the 30s in the Soviet Union, in difficult times too, was out of his translations. He was a brilliant linguist. He spoke half a dozen languages, including obscure languages like Georgian, as well as French and English. He translated all the Shakespearean classics into Russian. They had been done before, but none as expertly as Pasternak. Some Russians said with a wry humour that Pasternak's Shakespearean translations were better than the original Shakespeare. He also translated poetry. He was recognised in Russia in the 30s as a major poet. The Russians take their poetry very seriously. Indeed, during World War One, he didn't serve in the army, but he served in a kind of unit that supplied entertainment to injured soldiers in Russian hospitals and one of his key things uh, for which he was drawn huge audiences were his poems and uh, these were widely read in Russia everybody knew them there was a, a slight edge to them some of the poems were considered to be critical of Stalin well that was a pretty brave thing to be in the 1930s in Russia he actually um, spoke out uh, to a friend and others about the imprisonment of two famous poets in the 30s. Both of them went off to the Stalinist gulag, where one of them died. The other one, a woman, survived, and later, after Khrushchev's moderate liberalisation after Stalin's death, returned to normal life in Moscow again, if that's possible, after being imprisoned for a long time. Pasternak. In fact, took this matter up with a friend who then took it up with a Russian cabinet minister who must have then taken it up with Stalin because one night in 1937, out of the blue, Pasternak's phone rang in Moscow and who was on the phone but Stalin. Now, that was a pretty rare event in anyone's life. Years later, somebody said to him, Did you think it was a hoax call? He said nobody in the entire Soviet Union would have made a hoax call about Stalin and they conducted a conversation about Georgian poetry for about an hour. Stalin was, of course, a Georgian, and the translation of one of the Georgian poets by Pasternak was much to Stalin's taste. They never mentioned, by the way, in the conversation, matter of the two poets who'd been arrested, and that was the end of the conversation. He never spoke to Stalin again, but it was an extraordinary moment in his life. He went on translating and writing poetry... And in the 1950s and another book i might mention here is called the death of stalin it's in most libraries it's by a french author after the death of stalin uh, there was a, a liberalization in russia very quickly the sort of almost religious devotion to stalin that was displayed in the soviet press and media began to vanish a year later khrushchev made his famous de Stalinization speech in which he talked to the Communist Party Congress about the horrors of Stalinism, someone in the hall said, why didn't you speak out? He said, who said that? And the man remained silent. Khrushchev said, there, you get my point. It was a very clever instance of how dangerous it was for anyone, even at the top, to speak out against Stalin. Indeed, when he died at his country villa outside Moscow on a weekend, after a drinking binge, he had a, a stroke and died. The Communist Party leadership sat absolutely immobile all day until they found his daughter and brought his married daughter and brought her out from Moscow to see her father, who was now comatose, and a doctor then prescribed him dead. Even the Soviet leadership at the very top was terrified of stalin famously the generals in 1941 congratulating themselves on hitler's defeat at the gates of moscow when the german army for the first time was stopped in the snow as winter set in stalin didn't praise his generals he said my best general is general winter it displays a wry sense of humor because in a sense he was right the germans hadn't come They expected, like Napoleon, to capture Moscow before the winter set in. But they didn't, and paid the price in the snow. Pasternak lived through all these events. He lived through the Revolution after World War I. He lived through the Second World War. He wrote his poems and he wrote his translations of great classical works in European languages into Russian. And then he decided to write a novel, which was pretty much autobiographical. He didn't do it in one burst. He took many years to write it and rewrote, re the novel on various occasions. But by the 19... 60s it was thought that the whole question of literature in the Soviet Union, which had been very strictly controlled by the regime, all publishing was done by what was called the Soviet Writers' Union, which was just a branch of the Communist Party, and if your novel wasn't approved by the big shots in that group, then you were never going to get it published, nor any other work for that matter, whether it was a work of history or anything else. Soviet literature was absolutely controlled at the very top. In fact, the head of the Writers' Union was an old Stalinist hack. He'd actually never written anything himself, but he'd been close to Stalin and he had the absolute veto on anything that came out that he didn't like. Pasternak had Dr Zhivago written, but his attempts to get it published were very quickly rebuffed. And he knew he was in deep trouble if he got it published. But he met in Moscow a visiting Italian communist called Fratronelli, who was interestingly came from a, a very anti-fascist family in Italy during World War Two under Mussolini. They had a very heroic record. His family of opposing Mussolini, and Fratronelli was the head of the family publishing empire, quite wealthy man. But he was a member of the Italian Communist Party, so he was able to come and go to Moscow as he liked. He met Pasternak, liked the novel. It had been translated by Pasternak, it had it translated into English, and Fratronelli could read English. Uh, he liked the novel, took it back, took a copy back to uh, Italy with him, and published it, under the auspices, really, of the Italian Communist Party. But in Russia, the hardliners said it's an anti-Soviet novel because the basis of it is that Dr Zhivago, in the novel is a pretty apolitical he stands apart from all the great events taking place the revolution the coming of the soviet republic all of that he's more interested in his work as a doctor and his private life and his involvement with a woman called lara who is the central figure in the in the film and the novel and lara of course becomes his lover lara also um, was the source of a great many poems he wrote. They are called the Lara poems. This is the basis of the novel. In fact, in a sort of a way, you could see Dr Zhivago as as a love story rather than a political novel, and that's not uncommon. I mean, if you look at some of the great works of Russian literature, both War and Peace and um, several other major Russian novels, famous novels, like the works in Britain and France. Anna Karenina, Probably the other most famous novel of Tolstoy's is about a woman who falls in love with a bit of a bugger. This man eventually casts her off and she commits suicide. A very dramatic end to the novel. But uh, uh, Anna Karenina is the other great novel of Tolstoy's that everybody knows. Now, Fratronelli published the novel in Italy and that brought the party down on Pasternak's head. It wasn't published in, in Russian at all he won the nobel prize for literature but wasn't allowed to go to sweden to collect the prize and never did there was no russian edition of course the cia and the americans saw the whole controversy as a wonderful way to discredit the soviet government which it did oddly enough Khrushchev, who was still in power uh, though he was near the end of his reign Khrushchev hadn't read it either he'd just gone along with the soviet writers union saying it was an anti-Soviet novel and shouldn't be published. But his son-in-law, who was an academic, he asked him to read the novel and see what he thought of it. Floating around in Russia, there were copies, illegal copies. Uh, The son-in-law read it and said to uh, Khrushchev, I don't know what he's on about this bloke in the Writers' Union. It's a great novel. It's not very political. How could it be seen as anti-Soviet? Khrushchev was pretty annoyed at that. He immediately sacked the head of the Writers' Union because he thought that the writers union had misled him and, and actually played into the hands of, of the americans especially the cia which was now to publish an english language edition in america because it was so discrediting to the soviet union the whole controversy Pasternak died his son went to collect the nobel prize after gorbachev came to power gorbachev had read the novel and thought it was a great work of literature and all the bans on books and literature were lifted in the Soviet Union after Gorbachev came to power, and uh, that was the end of the story, in a sense. Outside the English and other language editions of. Dr Zhivago became popular and sold millions of copies. The film was later made by the Americans, not by the Russians. But it's an example of how stupid, unwise, at the best of times, politicians can be when it comes to literature. And anyone who's listening to the program, have a look around. The book, The Zhivago File, is in the bookshops at the moment. You'll probably pick it up in your local library if you ask them to get it, uh, because it's... um, a wonderful picture of this whole controversy. Now, the second uh, thing I'd like to look at, an American book recently published, and it also says a lot about stupid politicians, is a book called The Republicans' War on Science. For some reason in Australia and in the United States, but not in Britain, conservatives have taken up the, as you know, I'm sure, the whole case of global warming and have made it a, an issue in which they attack, as, as Abbott and his friends do here, attack the whole scientific argument for global warming, and they pick up a few dissenters, don't they? Like this man Lomberg from Denmark, and the idea of setting up a centre in Perth University, which the university has now rejected which would put the other case against the idea of global warming being the cause of our climate problems. In America, uh, this has reached a height of madness, as happens in the United States on many issues. But here in Australia, we have Abbott and many of his ministers and all sorts of spokespeople turning up the heat and saying, no, global warming isn't caused by climate change. All of those things are just a scientific fantasy. We had, only a few weeks ago, a man called Newman, who's a member of Abbott's staff, uh, he's his economic advisor, putting out a pure Tea Party line that global warming is a left-wing idea put out by people in the United Nations to force world governments. Now, that is really mad stuff that would be not out of place in the Tea Party people in the united states that's uh, also true as i said in britain in the united states and australia but not in britain where the conservatives have never had much doubts about global warming and have gone ahead with policies in britain that would be accepted by people here on the left indeed uh, who are aware of the problems so we have a very strange australian-american alliance between conservatives in the republican party and the tea party people and the liberal party here now this book the republican war on science looks at all of this Uh, the republicans have become increasingly anti-science not just on global warming but their long-running opposition to the teaching of evolution in schools which has been a major issue in the United States because schools are run locally and the school board in any town is a battleground between those who believe in evolution, which is the entire scientific establishment, and teachers, especially in America, the Science Teachers Association, who put up a great fight on this matter and led parents who see the folly of the Policies put out by right wing Tea Party Republicans who simply say there is no evolution, and this fits nicely with the views of the fundamentalist religious groups, namely the Protestant religious groups in the United States, uh, who see evolution as an attack on the Bible, of course. So, you've come back to uh, in America, with books, this book, uh, The Republican War on Science, looks at the way in which you have a major political party, the alternative government, taking up a line on the Bible that has nothing to do with modern scientific knowledge. By the way, it has to be said that for all its sins, the Catholic Church has for a long time accepted evolution, taught it in their schools, and recent statements by the present Pope. Uh, on evolution made made it clear he was very critical in fact in a recent statement of those Christians other Christians who uh, oppose the whole idea of evolution in the United States this whole battle over the questions of everything from evolution to global warming is linked to this business of the bible by the way a perfect example of the folly of the right-wing parties in america is being played out at the moment in texas the american army is much given to having military exercises it's what armies do you know to fill in their time they play games like schoolboys, really but with deadly weapons and at the moment the united states state's military is conducting one of its endless military exercises in texas now texas is is good for military exercises it's a huge place you can run your tanks around and do all sorts of things without doing much damage to anyone however the republican governor of texas who's a far right winger believes that the obama administration is using the exercise and the army, to force what he calls socialist policies and take over Texas. Now, you couldn't think of anything madder, really, could you? The United States government is, after all, the government of Texas. It's a federal system, just as the federal government is the government of Victoria. And the United States army is run under the Constitution by the federal government in America, but that doesn't stop the Republican governor now seeing the American army as a tool in the hands of the socialist president in the white house obama so the national guard which is a kind of home guard in america uh, the national guard is run by the states and under the american constitution the states have a right to a home army for defence locally, for emergency services. If if you ever see a, a bad flood in America, for instance, or something like a tornado, they'll often speak of the National Guard. The National Guard is a volunteer service, a bit like our Country Fire Authority here, and they have little to do with the army, but they do good work with disasters, and they are run by the states, not the federal government anyway. The Republican Governor of Texas has decided he will use his National Guard to survey and keep under scrutiny the federal United States Army, which is being followed around in Texas at the moment by groups uh, from the National Guard who suspected of trying to overthrow the Republican Government of Texas. Now, this is real lunacy, isn't it? While this is happening in Texas, however... There's been a resurgence in Washington, in the Republican Party of the what were called, in the time of George Bush, the Neocons. Now, the Neocons were an aggressive group who wanted a foreign policy based on American power and military right, and military might would uh, be used against anyone who uh, opposed the United States. But nowadays there's a sort of consensus among the Republicans in Washington that America should return to these more aggressive foreign policies which the neocons used as their basis for the attack on Iraq. Amazingly, Jeb Bush, George Bush's brother, who has been recently governor of uh, Florida, when asked if he were president at the time of the Iraq war, And had known the truth that iraq didn't have weapons of mass destruction which was the key lie in the whole activity would he have still gone ahead with the war and he said yes yes the war was was right uh, and we removed saddam so the right wing of the republican party despite the daily evidence of the disasters in iraq with this is movement still adheres to this idea that American power should be imposed wherever it's needed. Recently in the New York Times, Professor Krugman, a great critic then and now of Bush and his policies in Iraq, said this was a lie. The crucial thing to understand about Iraq is that the invasion wasn't a mistake. It was a crime. We were lied and deceived into a war. And we should never let that ugly truth be forgotten. He says, of course, it's a bit like the economic debate in the United States. People like Senator Ryan have been endlessly talking, as some of our politicians here talk, about the deficit and their concern with the deficit. Have you, grown tired of hearing politicians speak about the deficit? I have. He says that what is true about the conservative politicians' attack in the United States on the deficit is that they are really want to dismantle the whole, or what remains, of the welfare state in America that Roosevelt and Truman and others set up to World War II. Pensions and benefits, they oppose a health scheme, all of this. And all of that is concealed under the debate, if it's called that, about the deficit. And that is pretty true here. But as the professor says, Professor Krugman says, we know that the war in Iraq wasn't a a mistake made in good faith. Bush and Cheney and the others didn't sit down with the military and even get their opinions. What they wanted to do was make an attack on Iraq, and the 9-11 attack in New York was used as the excuse they thought it was a case of fighting a splendid little war, which they expected to win very quickly, so they misled and lied to the public and all of the disasters that have followed in Iraq. And think about this when you watch the news in the next few days and see more and more about ISIS. Think about that because it was their lying and deceiving, that the neocons, which plunged Iraq into what's now a seemingly unwinnable conflict by the incompetent iraqi government lastly i I would look at a phrase i've come across or two phrases recently that not may not be very familiar to your listeners yet one of them is brexit the other is post britain now you're all familiar i'm sure with the result of the british elections and not only the return of the conservative government but the remarkable victory in scotland capturing 56 of the 59 seats from the scottish nationalists who have wiped out the British Labour Party, which really deserved to be wiped out in Scotland because it opposed Scottish independence at the referendum, made promises to the Scots which it's never seeked to put into power, uh, and generally... The British Labour Party has failed in all these measures. We now have a situation where the local government in Edinburgh is dominated with a majority government by the Nationalists and they now control nearly every seat in the Commons, where they will be quite a major oppositional force. What does this say for the future of Britain? At the same time in England, we see the UKIP Party, which only got one seat but actually got 12.5% of the votes at the election and, and in fact, was the third party. It polled more votes than the Scottish Nationalists and it polled more votes than the poor old battered Liberals who were in the Tory government coalition. Now, UKIP has 12% of the votes and a nationwide organisation. Next year, Cameron, the Conservative Prime Minister, has promised to carry out a referendum in Britain on British membership in the European Union. UKIP are opposed to that and are going to urge a yes vote to withdraw from Europe altogether. Nearly 100 Tory MPs of his something like 320 MPs are also opposed to the European Union. So UKIP will not only have its own party organisation, which did, which after all got one vote in eight, across Britain, well, when I say Britain, I mean England. And that comes to this point of this phrase post-Britain, because the Scots no longer describe themselves as British. They see the old idea of the United Kingdom as dead. UKIP in Britain, in England, will probably poll twelve or fifteen percent in any future election, and they will be the core of the opposition to European Union and they will support the referendum to withdraw. As well a hundred Tory MPs, as I said, the British Labour Party is pretty well committed to stay in Europe. The Scots have always been good Europeans. Historically, they're long, long ago their alliance with the French. So the Scots and the English differ greatly on this matter and if the referendum were to be carried by an overwhelming vote in England which has uh, I think about five or six times the population of Scotland so the result will be decided in England then the Scots nationalists are now making it clear that they would go ahead straight away with a, a new referendum to withdraw from the United Kingdom. Uh, and not go along with any attempt by the British government in London, Uh, they use the term London government now a lot in Scotland, to get out of the European Union. This term, Brixis, is is made up of the word exit and Britain, and uh, it's the term used for that moment when Britain, if that's still in existence, moves out of the European Union. Without Scotland, of course, in that Instance, we would see Scotland almost certainly vote for independence. Last time, the vote was about 54-46 to remain in Britain. But the latest polls have given the, the, the yes vote in Scotland to get out of Britain as high as 55%. So we might see the end of the United Kingdom in the not-too-distant future. And we might see England reduced to a government that runs England from London but has no power at all over Scotland. Even in the present day, the Scots nationalists are demanding all sorts of new measures to give them more power over taxes and uh, generally local affairs in Scotland, much of which are under their control. The government in Edinburgh now runs transport, uh, education, to a degree health, various other local measures. This uh, post-election Britain, or post-Britain as some people are calling it, is... um, The next big thing, one would imagine, in the United Kingdom, and worst of all for Cameron and the Tories, the British economy is not showing any signs of much recovery. If the British economy goes into a steep decline, you can pretty well predict that in Scotland, which is amazingly the poorest section of the united kingdom more unemployment more poverty will be motivated to finally shake off the um, the links the ancient links with britain with england and after all scotland has several important liquid objects that it sells to the world the gas and oil fields of the united kingdom are in scotland They have a product called whiskey, which sells around the world and it's a major tourist country.
2: And that was the historian and author Brian McKinlay with a little whip around the world with a a couple of books and also what's happening in or what at the moment is Britain which um, might not be Britain for a few more years to come. Thanks to Brian. And just another reminder that two weeks' time on this program... The Radiothon starts next Monday. For the first week, it is the the job of the non-English-speaking programs to raise money for the station. And then the next week, it is everybody's turn to... Well, we have to make sure we've got $220,000, which goes a long way to keeping the station on air for another year. Every program has a target. I have a fairly substantial one but I believe that I have a fairly substantial listenership, So hopefully, if everyone gives a little, this station will go from strength to strength. 40 years next year, it's a pretty amazing record to keep a radio station on there without government funding for its day-to-day expenses, no advertising sponsorship, and that's what we hope to keep that way. But we can only do that if it becomes and stays a community radio station where listeners and supporters put their money where their ears are. So that's two weeks' time, but you don't have to wait for two weeks. You can give a call on nine four one nine eight three double seven, or go to the website on 3cr.org.au and pledge your support to keeping this wonderful radio station on air for yet another year.
0: Today we're going to learn about H3O. Uh,
3: Professor, if I'm not mistaken, H3O is the chemical compound hydronium.
0: That's correct, Nelson, but it's also an exciting new formula. H3O is simply the addition of water and the subtraction of sugary drinks multiplied by 30 days. Mm. Ah, I see. And the results? You can
1: kickstart weight loss, reduce health risks, reduce tooth decay and save money. Take VicHealth's H3O Challenge and switch sugary drinks for water for 30 days. Find out more at h3ochallenge.com.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. Spoken by Richard Moss and Tim Potter.
3: 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian
2: scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. This morning I spoke to human rights activist in Western Australia, Jack Smith. The news doesn't get any better, does it?
1: The headline is, we will not resettle anyone who travels the planet by boat to seek safety. If you come by boat, wherever that is, we've seen it now, if you come from China or Taiwan or Malaysia, and you don't even aim for Australia, but for another country... Our dear Prime Minister, great leader, has said you're an opportunist and you have no grace in Australia, which is just a really dumb piece of rhetoric aimed at his own market of wavering voters. They keep him in government if he says the right things. So he says the right things. And it is a brazen, callous, politically opportune, Three-word slogan, you know, as the media have reported over the weekend, Tony Abbott's new slogan is nope, nope, nope.
2: And the other slogan is dope, dope, dope.
1: Yeah, well, you know, he is, but, you know, who will say so? <laughs> you are not Bill Shorten, that's the problem. Well,
2: he's saying nope, nope, nope too. That's
1: right. He says he agrees with the Prime Minister that we should not open the floodgates. That really is what he's saying without using the word. So it is again the absolute stupidity of this country. Bill Shorten is of course the brazen hypocrite. Tony Abbott can't be accused of hypocrisy because he just is blunt, denies that we have any international obligations. Bill Shorten however says that the Labour Party under his leadership will make Australia into an internationalist country. Then they moan on about international obligations and then the catchphrase for the Labour Party is um, regional cooperation, regional burden sharing, a regional settlement. It's actually code for there are many countries around us who can resettle doing the resettlement. We will help them to do that. But under no circumstances, they will resettle a year. And we're talking about Rohingya, who are stateless non-citizens in Myanmar, Burma. And we're talking about Bangladeshis who, according to the Bangladeshi Prime Minister yesterday, are mentally ill people who heap shame on the beautiful country Bangladesh because they have left the country illegally by boat and they should be punished for leaving illegally. Here's the regional reaction, the loudest voices. Tony Abbott is one of the loud, loud voices.
2: Well, they're certainly being punished, aren't they? Yep,
1: yeah, they are already being punished. And what will the Australian reaction B, if we have some smart television crew, whether that will be Al Jazeera or the BBC, or even somebody like Channel 9 or Channel 7 or Channel 10, will fly with a chopper over the ocean and zooms in with their cameras on one of these rickety vessels with 50 dead bodies on board, floating around in the ocean. And I'm not dreaming this up. This is one of the likely outcomes if there are boats that are not located and rescued in time by countries other than Australia. Because, of course, we've now got commitments from Malaysia and Indonesia and Thailand to do something to help these people. They actually are distinguishing between the evil people smugglers and the poor passengers. What happens in Australia if we get camera footage from a chopper from a boat with dead bodies on board floating around in the ocean. Will we get up in arms about the stupidity of our prime minister and our government and the stupidity of Bill Shorten for labor? Or will we all applaud when Tony Abbott says, well, it really it's dreadful, it's dreadful, but really that's what happens when you put yourself in the arms of people members. Washing your hands in innocence is creating false manipulative rhetoric in the Australian domestic scene. That's how you get away with stuff in this country. Will there be a reaction in Australia when we see that footage, if we ever see that footage? Or will everybody keep applauding the absolute criminal mind of Tony Emmett?
2: What about the Mediterranean, Jack?
1: They are dealing with stuff.
2: But they didn't for a while, did they?
1: No, they're not. But it still is a fact that people are going out to rescue people on the ocean. So they are not turning boats back there are of course on the european parliament level decisions have been made to infiltrate libya and destroy what they now call the business of people smuggling where have they heard that before i think it comes out of australia and of course there was a motion in the european parliament to make it compulsory for all the member countries of europe to commit themselves and sign the papers for an annual intake Now, the annual compulsory annual intake is a fantastic concept. Uh, There was in 1998, I think, there was a conference of international jurists at um, one of the American universities, kind of significant conference of international jurists. And the motion came out of there, look, there is really an error in the United Nations because on the one hand, we make decisions that the world will be responsible for starting another war. And it's you know UN-sanctioned war that you know, the General Assembly and the Security Council make those decisions. But the upshot of that is that uh, there will be displacement of people, and there is no motions ever in the General Assembly or in the Security Council that the world then has to sign off on being responsible for the intake of displaced people and refugees. Ukraine war is one that's being signed off by the United Nations. But the dealing with the fallout, refugees, asylum seekers, is being sidelined away from the Security Council and the General Assembly to the United Nations High Commission of Refugees. It's so convenient to have that done on the side by another arm of the United Nations. The commission of jurists in that conference at the university said, look, the reality is, This has to be tabled as a compulsory upshot of starting a war in the General Assembly, and it has to be signed off by the Security Council. That if there is a war that has been approved by the the World Community of Nations, then immediately the World Community of Nations needs to sign off on being totally, fully, 100% responsible for all the displaced people as a result of this action. And they have to commit themselves to a compulsory intake of these displaced people. Now, that has never happened. And we saw that motion, an equivalent motion, being tabled in the European Parliament a couple of weeks ago. But guess what happened? UK was the first one to say, no, we're opting out, we're not being part of it. Then Hungary came out, and then Latvia came out, and then the string of countries that were opting out in the European Parliament about that possible motion was so big that the motion was never put. In other words, in Europe, They want to be responsible for punishing, punishing, punishing the evil smugglers. But they're not wanting to be responsible to compel themselves to look after the passengers. That was the upshot of the European motion. That never went to the floor of the European Parliament because everybody opted out. So there's the callousness reflected in Europe what we are so good at in Australia. We want to be responsible for punishing evil but we don't want to be responsible for sharing our humanity. Stay out there, die somewhere else. That is the message from Australia, and it's almost finding ear in the European Parliament. I say almost, because not entirely, but it is, that is the trend at the moment. And there, was a, there was a beautiful sentence in an opinion piece about three weeks ago about Europe, where somebody wrote, I think it was an Australian journalist, it may have been Guy Rundle, I think it was, he wrote, these passengers from Africa, are wanting to go to Europe to share in some of the wealth that was stolen from Africa in the first place. Because don't forget that the rich Western nations, huddling together in the European Parliament, a lot of them, got themselves really rich at the end of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, by running into Africa and raiding Africa's resources, establishing Western companies for the mining and the diamonds and the coal and the oil and the whatever jewels they were found in the soil of Africa, so we are happy to infiltrate Africa under the heinous arrogance of colonialism mm-hmm. that says says that we are Western so are better. And you are natives and you do not know anything, so we're going to develop your country for you because we are colonizing you so we can reap the rewards and take the money home to our rich Western countries. So in other words, now that African people are on the run because they cannot be at home in a safe country, there is no safe country for them, they come to Europe to share some of the wealth that was stolen from their um, continent in the first place we say no, and we, we want to stop them from coming. And that really is what it is again. It is again the West against the rest.
2: And it also should be the U.S. too, for what they've done to the people of Africa.
1: Definitely. But let's not forget that if the, when the news of the Rohingyas and the Bangladeshis broke, the U.S. State Department was the first country on the planet to say, yeah, we'll take a considerable slice of those migrants. They were offering resettlement for the first couple of thousands of Rohingyas that were floating around in rickety boats in the ocean. On the here and now level, America is at least offering a gesture of commitment, and of course, it's not followed suit by uh, by many countries. And now, of course, we're suddenly discovering in Malaysia death camps, uh, mass graves, hundreds, if not thousands, of people are being discovered right now that have been buried because. Their families refused to uh, buy them out of the prison that was made for these poor people by the people smugglers. So we're now finding um, graves and graves and graves, which is something Malaysia and Thailand had denied to be taking place on their soil until three weeks ago. For many months and for years, aid organizations have said that there are mass graves and people smugglers are getting rid of bodies if they don't get their money. It is an evil trade but the countries become evil if they deny that it exists on their soil and now Malaysia has to admit that there is something happening. It is an unfolding story it's a really sad tale and the final word has not been said but it seems that Australia has already said the final word and that's the arrogance of our country
2: Certainly is That's human rights activist from Narogen in Western Australia Jack Smith You're listening to 3CR, Melbourne's community radio station, Jan Bartlett with you for home time, coming up, the Greens party in the Philippines, but you could be listening, I'm sure you are either on a radio, 8.55, digital is a possibility, 8.55, you can be listening on your computer, 3cr.org.au, you can hear this program for a week and then it, moves over to the next week or you can have it sent to your computer and you can listen at your leisure 3cr.org.au
1: Promote your community event be it a rally meeting
0: fundraising gig call out for entries or piece of Agiprop on 3CR's online community calendar not-for-profit community organisations and activist artists Are invited to upload community event information and event poster or photos. Go to 3cr.org.au and click on add your community event here on the right hand column under community events. 3CR, spreading the seeds of dissent.
1: Check this out, man. (coughs)
4: This is Izzy Brown from Combat Wombat. 3CR's annual radiothon is almost here. At 3CR we're calling to you to activate the airwaves by
3: donating your money from the 1st of June till the 14th to 3CR's annual radiothon. So keep 3CR active on the airwaves for another year. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference so donate. Go online to 3cr.org.au or call us on nine four one Let's do it together and support 3CR truly independent community radio. Yeah!
2: This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle.
0: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of
3: nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity.
2: 3CR, Radio for the Workers, by the Workers, since 1976. In past years, Bob Muntz travelled to the Philippines many times as a trade union and human rights activist. But his last visit was a little different. He was there representing the Australian Greens at the invitation of the Philippines Greens Party. I asked Bob first how long that party has been in existence in the Philippines.
4: It was actually formed about uh, 12 years ago in 2003 by uh, a group of people uh, who are interested in Greens issues, shall we say. A few uh, academics and uh, workers in uh, NGOs like Greenpeace and so forth. They formed a political party, mainly through working on the internet. Through social media, they got uh, a membership up to about 600 or so over the country, but that's just a drop in the ocean when there's 100 million people there. They didn't really uh, have much any success. They never got themselves established enough to uh, run candidates in elections, which is the essence of a, a Greens party, I think, if you look at Australia. You could say they limped along without a lot of success, but they never died either. And two or three years ago, uh, people in one of the provinces near Manila, which had a long tradition of social activism and uh, seeking to overthrow dictatorial governments and so forth, people there who'd been uh, interested in Greens issues, in ecological issues for a long time, uh, decided to form themselves into a a Greens party and they've adopted a new strategy which is aimed at... uh, uh, seeking to get support from the uh, the poor rural farmers and fishers and uh, urban poor people as well. Couple that with more of the middle class people with uh, probably got a university education and uh, who form the basis of the uh, support for Greens in Australia. Coupling those two together in the Philippines, they've had a lot of success. And
2: uh... was it a difficult or an easy thing to get that party moving? a couple of Uh, years ago. Were there obstacles put in their way?
4: There'll always be obstacles put in their way but it was a lot easier than I might have expected because they had a tradition going back at least 23 years. I think their leader started uh, community organising in that area 23 years ago and he's uh, not a native of that area but he's lived there for a long time. So with almost two decades of uh, basic community organising, dealing with the issues of social justice and economic development that Poor people everywhere uh, are most interested in and just in the last few years they've coupled that with Greens issues and decided to uh, throw in their lot with uh, the Greens party and that's allowed them to make uh, relatively fast progress over the last two or three years.
2: Can you describe the area?
4: An area that's uh, small cities and uh, a bit of industrial development. There's a few towns where there's uh, a shoe trade, you know, a lot of small subcontractors making uh, shoes for... uh, Uh, no doubt international marketing companies and a few other small industries, but mostly it's rural. People are um, growing rice or um, a lot of them growing fish in fish cages in lakes and it's on the um, the borders of uh, the largest freshwater lake or the largest lake of any sort in the Philippines, surrounded by some mountains but basically a very flat uh, agricultural area and most importantly it's also subject to a lot of typhoons uh, the Philippines gets 12, 15 major typhoons every year and apart from the damage they cause through strong winds, they're associated with a lot of rain and you always get flooding and, and flooding is the big issue in this area because it's low line, it's on the shores of a huge lake and uh, when they get a flood, it's a fair dinkum flood, they say that um, the flooding can last three months and the house I stayed in on the shores of the lake They show me the watermarks uh, on the kitchen wall and they go up to about five feet above the floor. So if you've got that sort of flood after a major typhoon and they're happening more frequently, uh, they used to happen once every five, ten years, now it's become almost an annual event. And they're attributing this to climate change. So the big issue for them is climate change, which they're uh, seeking to tackle.
2: And what can the people do in a situation like that when the, these floods come at a regular basis? Should they move? There's nowhere else to go, I'd imagine.
4: You have to move if, if your kitchen floor is five foot underwater. But they well, come back again? They come back again. They know it's not going to last forever, but three months is a long, long time. <laughs> the floods in Australia, you might have 24 hours, 48 hours. Uh, the people up in Queensland, when there's a cyclone there, but this is three months, so that's a bit over the top. But just over the road from that house, I was staying in, there was what I thought at first was a basketball court and I wondered why it had such strong brick walls around it and it was elevated several feet above the ground. That's their emergency evacuation centre as well as a, a basketball court and a, a meeting place for the community and so forth. So that's a new, well-constructed building, so that gives people somewhere to go when their houses get flooded and that's just for a, little, uh, a small village of a few hundred people.
2: And who looks after these people while they're out of their houses for three months? you have got to be fed. The kids hopefully go to school.
4: They probably don't go to school. school. Basically, no one. They're, they might get some emergency food relief, but not much more. And that's the problem, that the government's uh, services for people like that are very weak, poorly organised and largely ineffectual. That's something the Greens are tackling, saying, you, well, you don't only have to get people to, to vote for us in elections. We want to organise them so that they can provide at the village level a lot of those services that government doesn't provide. And that's a major part of their organising. So they've, the most successful thing they've done is to develop a, a strategy for dealing with climate change, a large part of which is dealing with these disasters that come with typhoons and the floods, setting up the disaster relief committees They might get some resources from the government, but delivering those resources to the people when and where they need them is another matter. So they're organising disaster committees to uh, do that relief distribution and organisation when disasters happen and they're inevitable. So they say they're doing climate change adaptation. They're acknowledging that in the here and now the changes from climate change are here for them they're here already so it's not a matter of uh, stopping what's going to happen in 2050 or in a uh, hundred years time it's what's happening right now they've organized that and they're doing it through party organized a strategy and while I was there they just persuaded the provincial governor to adopt uh, what is essentially that strategy as a provincial government strategy which is very important because it means they can get some funds to implement it out of the provincial government. I attended the ceremony where the provincial governor signed this uh, strategy as to making it an official document, and to be truthful, he didn't look all that enthusiastic, but he did sign it. And the leader of the Greens has got himself a position in the uh, provincial government structure uh, as the chief organizer of this project. So. Without even having much success, they've got a few uh, local councillors uh, and hoping to get a whole lot more next year when the elections come around again. But without having really much significant representation in parliaments or councils, they managed to have a really profound effect on the uh, strategies of the provincial government. And uh, while I was there, this guy who was the leader of it all fielded a couple of calls from the presidential um, Climate Change Commission in uh, Manila. They're certainly having an impact and they've got plans to do things apart from all that disaster relief stuff. They've got plans to uh, uh, put in uh, a large scale array of solar panels to uh, generate electricity uh, from renewables. And uh, another of their members showed me uh, some photographs of a similar thing that's been done in the next province that wasn't done by the Greens but by other people. And it looks like about 30 or 40 hectares of solar panels all uh, buzzing away or generating electricity. So a few things are happening there along the lines of developing renewable sources of energy as is happening in Australia. But that's probably not the main focus. It's more on uh, dealing with the immediate impacts of uh, climate change that they're experiencing already.
2: And how is climate change affecting the, their ability to grow food? Are they changing what they're doing? in that sense too?
4: Not much. Uh, it's still at an early stage and they probably uh, could do with some uh, some more technical input on that. But uh, people are growing rice and not many of the small-scale farmers there own their own land, so their, their options for change in agricultural practices are a bit limited when you don't own the land. But some of the activities that uh, I saw were developing uh, breeding fish and uh, fish for... Uh, Sale, um, you know, in the food markets, in uh, some of the smaller lakes, and uh, they probably have to watch that too because uh, there's only a certain amount you can, certain amount of fish cages you can put into a, a small lake without uh, doing awful damage to the ecology of it. So, um, be limits on that sort of work. But that's the sort of thing that uh, they're doing, and it ranges from very good, what I call very good and well organised community organising to People are really just starting out. In one urban area I went to, in a a town that's terribly overcrowded and some of the worst slums I've ever seen in the Philippines. And that'd
2: be saying something, wouldn't it?
4: It would, yes, Mm. it would. People who lived near what was really only a creek leading into this large lake I mentioned. And I was talking to them about their disasters and someone had already told me they had severe floods there. My questions provoked an animated discussion in Tagalog, their local language. The result of which was they had no plan for dealing with floods except to buy boats so they could get in a boat and float their way out of the flood and go and live somewhere else. So I can laugh about it, but it's an absolute tragedy for the people involved. And they have so few resources that that's the only thing they can do. And the response of government so far has only been to start to build a wall around this creek, just a high four or five metre concrete wall along the banks of this creek. And I don't think that's really the way to deal with floods. It's just not going to work and and it was only half completed when I was there so it would have absolutely no effect on the next flood which is probably due in a few months. So uh, they're really in very difficult circumstances. And the other thing I probably should mention is part of the community organising effort is to work with women. A lot of women are what I call plain housewives in the Philippines which just means They don't have any paid work outside the home, but believe you me, they're pretty busy. And they've started savings groups amongst them, and that's a a device to deal with immediate problems by people contribute some small amount of savings every week, might only be 50 cents a week, but that's a significant sum of money for them. And after uh, perhaps a year of saving, they've got enough money to open a cooperative store and uh, be able to buy food and uh, other necessities that... uh, better prices than they would get elsewhere and from the point of view of a political party that's organising that generates a level of organisation they meet as a group every week they've got things to discuss and out of that you get a few leaders developing so I saw that out of that there are a number of uh, women who otherwise would not have been involved politically at all I'm sure who have emerged as leaders of the group and some of them are very impressive leaders. There's one even offered to come over to Australia and uh, show us how to organise these savings groups. So it's pretty hard to give a meaningful answer to, uh, to that that uh, I don't think people really, hear, really feel I need those sorts of savings groups but I managed to, uh, to give a satisfactory answer to that one without actually saying yes. That sort of organising, which is dealing with people's immediate needs, but is also linked to the long-term actions of a political party, which is aiming to get control of local governments uh, in their area. They're not so ambitious, not yet anyway, as to think they might win seats in uh, the national parliament. You've got to have a lot of money to uh, do that, and traditionally those elections are riddled with the most blatant bribery
2: you're listening to Tuesday Hometime with Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Bob Muntz from the Australian Greens and the topic is politics in the Philippines, particularly green politics. Is there a level of power, though, in those local governments?
4: Only in the local area, but yeah. it is small, but it is significant. Uh, we have three tiers of government in Australia, national, state and municipal, but they have four. They've got their national, provincial and municipal, but underneath that... They've got a sort of village level of government and these are formal village councils and I call them village councils but they also operate in cities in the suburbs. They uh, have an elected, uh, they call him a a village captain, maybe seven or eight councillors who get a bit of a stipend. They have an office. They automatically get a grant, a a fairly modest one, but they get a grant from the national government to uh, operate on and they can get project grants for various purposes. Uh, for one of them that I visited, they just got a, a grant of, uh, it was only a few thousand dollars, I think, maybe, uh, maybe $10,000, but that was for uh, projects to develop uh, income-generating activities for women. And curiously, it was named as, uh, it was called a Child Abuse Prevention Project. And I said, what are the problems with child abuse uh, in this area? And they said, oh, there aren't any, but If we want to avoid them developing, we need to uh, increase the incomes of the families and the best to do that through the women. So we're uh, giving women various handicraft opportunities and it's all terribly small scale, but even making handicrafts at home and then selling them in the markets, a significant increase in uh, income for women. So having their local village councils can get grants to do that sort of thing and maybe a whole lot of other things as well. So if you can get people elected to those village councils... There's an opportunity to get access to some resources and you can do things only in the village, of course, and there's a lot of the things to do with uh, climate change can only operate on a national or at least a provincial level, but uh, that's the sort of basic organising that they're aiming at at the moment and uh, that would appear to be uh, pretty successful and uh, pretty well organised in the areas i visited.
2: You say that the people don't own the land themselves. Who are, who does own the land? And is that a problem that they've, there's absent landlords?
4: Yes, it is a problem. It's been a problem in the Philippines for a, a century or more. Well, several centuries. that land was owned and controlled on a, a very much a feudal system for several hundred years, introduced by the Spanish back in the uh, 16th century. There have been various land reform programs to try and give land back to the small-scale farmers who actually work the land. But there's been program after program over decades, and none of them work. So you still have absentee landlords who control what goes on on the land, but they don't do any of the work. And they're a problem. uh, I'm not sure who those landlords are, but uh, I know they don't live locally. One place I went to there was a big land dispute which has been going on for years that a community of about, um, oh, about 250 people, I think, they've claimed uh, an area of land which is would be suitable for agricultural purposes, but nothing much is happening on it at present. And that's claimed by uh, the San Miguel Corporation, who, um, one of the largest corporations in the Philippines, maybe even the largest, they actually make beer, amongst other things, but they also like to own land. And this community, with the support of the Greens, has been waging a legal campaign through the courts in the Philippines to get control of this land, which um, should be illegal under Philippines law, that uh, there's a law which prevents any individual or corporation owning more than a, a certain area of land. I think it's fairly small, something like five hectares. One person or corporation is not allowed to own any more than five hectares. And uh, this would be well above that, might, I don't know, might be 100 hectares, 50 or 100 hectares. They've been working through the courts with help from the Greens and help from uh, pro bono legal people, giving them uh, support. After five or more years, it still isn't resolved, but uh, the people are still working on it and hopeful. So th- that sort of basic social justice issue of land reform, is, it's been tackled by many groups over the years with very little success even though they've got laws passed in the national parliament and still going
2: can you talk a bit more about your contribution to the debates and the the issues there what was your role
4: my role was to develop a relationship between the australian greens and the uh, uh, the greens organization over there which wasn't uh, that difficult they welcomed with open arms welcome me with open arms because there's a apart from they see that they could get some resources and the Greens here got together a small amount of money to assist them with their organising so that was uh, organised a few months ago and their response to was invite someone to come over and and attend their provincial congress and see how things went so that was why I went there but I've stuck around for a while I was interested to see how they'd uh, come to organise in the way they have and how successful it was being. So uh, I was there mainly observing but My presence perhaps had greater impact than uh, it merited, given that I was only there very briefly and I didn't really have any power to do anything much except oversee a small grant of money. But the way things work in the Philippines, if any group wants to gain some power and influence, if they can associate themselves with a a foreign organisation, that adds a certain amount of prestige to uh, what they were doing. So... I didn't really make much of a contribution to the debates. I was there to observe what they were doing and saying, and uh, I might have made a, made some comments about their plans for relationship with the, the Australian Greens and other international Greens. But uh, beyond that, I didn't do much. But um, they wanted me there when they met the governor, for example. Uh, they thought it added a bit of prestige uh, to their uh, presentation when they want, wanted the governor to sign up to the climate change action plan. So they thought my presence was valuable in that respect.
2: And what will be the ongoing relationship between the two groups?
4: Oh, well, uh, the Philippines group would uh, like to continue uh, a financial relationship. Whether the Greens in Australia have the money to do that, uh, I'm not sure. But um,
2: It wouldn't be a lot of money though, would it?
4: No, but uh, significant in their terms. But uh, the Australian Greens don't have a lot and of course, the priority is spending what we have got on uh, election campaigns uh, here. So the the money available would always be fairly small. But there's room for collaboration on uh, political issues, and uh, I need to explore how that might work. But I just noticed when I came back uh, uh, report in the paper that there's concern over U.S. military forces being based in the Philippines. That's been a hot issue for a long time. And they used to have a couple of really big U.S. military bases there, which got closed down 20 years ago. But uh, they've now got what's called the Visiting Forces Agreement, which provides for a very similar relationship between the U.S. military forces and the Philippines as a country that we have here. We have U.S. military forces based in Darwin or visiting Darwin uh, every so often. The same thing happens in the Philippines, and it's resented by many, many Filipinos. So I think there's room for a bit of collaborative action there at the political level, sharing of information and perhaps uh, campaigns. So uh, that sort of thing. There might be uh, some opportunities for being able to facilitate a bit of technological transfer. I'm interested in finding out what some of the technical groups who are dealing with climate change and renewable energy in Australia, I know some of them are interested in uh, promoting those developments in uh, developing countries and there's scope for that. Uh, With the Philippines too. They've got the motivation and they've got the organisation and they've got the business contacts to get up, a, say, a a solar electrical generating plant, but they don't have much in the way of technical skills, so there might be some scope for uh, developing relationships there.
2: So even though it's a developing country, they're taking climate change more seriously than we are here?
4: Well, that was one of the nicest things in being there. In uh, a couple of weeks there reading the papers and talking to people, not just people in the Greens but others, I didn't hear one word about climate change denial. Not one word. Well, they're Uh,
2: right in the middle of it, aren't they? They've experienced
4: it. it. It's it's not an issue. Well, to be perfectly truthful, not all of the people at the village level understand uh, the science of climate change in the way that we might hear. In fact, I remember at one local meeting I was at uh, a couple of the local village councillors were giving a speech and referring to climate change but their understanding of the the science of climate change seemed pretty dodgy and the the local Greens leader in that area who was uh, quite an older woman who'd uh, obviously been fairly well educated a long time ago leaned over and whispered in my ear they haven't got a clue what climate change uh, really is. That was her estimate, not mine, but I agree with her. Those people, they understand the effects of climate change and I tried to tell them that, well, look, climate change manifests itself in different ways in different places. In Australia, we're more affected by droughts and bushfires due to climate change, whereas the effect is, is floods, uh, increased severity of floods and more frequent floods. And uh, I don't think I got that point across to people at the village level. That was, It was just too far beyond their experience. But they know they've got... Uh, that the floods are more frequent and worse and so they want to do something about them.
2: But that understanding will come in time, surely.
4: Well, you would hope so, but at the moment it's been vigorously promoted that this is the effects of climate change and there should be the same nuances to that that we have in Australia. We know that bushfires have always occurred. It's a question of whether they're uh, increased in frequency and severity here. Well, the same can be said of floods in the Philippines. They've always had them. And I think some of the arguments in the Philippines are not as nuanced as perhaps uh, from a scientific point of view I think they should be. But that probably uh, is inevitable when you're dealing with promoting uh, mass support for uh, an organisation. So I was just happy that I didn't have to put up with listening to nonsense from climate denialists.
2: Looking at the broader picture of politics in Philippines... Years ago, it was a great interest of yours and a a great concern. What did you find out this time? What have you learned?
4: Maybe the thing that I've most learned is that uh, nothing much has changed. The the fundamental problems of the Philippines, uh, well, one, is there's a culture of political violence, and that's been used in the past by both the left and the right, the left uh, seeking uh, an armed overthrow of a dictatorial government back in the 1980s. That's now faded away to nothing. There is no issue of uh, armed insurrection from the left in the Philippines. Those people are either politically quiet or they're supporting uh, the election of uh, some of their number to uh, the National Parliament. But there's still an issue of political violence, absolutely. The people who have the power also have private armies. They may not use them terribly often these days. But as recently as five years ago, there was an incident in the southern Philippines, not where I was this time, in which uh, a candidate wanted to file uh, his candidature for uh, election to as a provincial governor. And the incumbent provincial governor, who had his uh, horde of goons, strongly opposed this. And uh, in a ceremonial way, the, the opposition candidate formed a car convoy to go and register his candidacy that was met with armed force by the men of the provincial governor and 57 people killed. That's only five years ago in election-related violence, not even on election day, but when an opposition candidate seeks to file his uh, nomination. 57 people, including journalists who were present, supporters of the candidate, the candidate himself, and a few people who just happened to be passing by were all killed. So that's extraordinary that that could happen that's only one incident five years ago but there are many many political figures in the philippines not all of them but many many of them who have armed force to back up their rule and they're prepared to use it so there is that culture of political violence i was intrigued at first to hear at greens meetings somebody would always get up and give a speech about the greens and they'd say we're a non-violent organization well greens in australia don't bother saying that because it 's not contested, everyone from Tony Abbott to uh, the Greens accepts that politics is and should be not subject to that sort of violence in australia, but that 's not accepted in the philippines so it 's to have someone openly commit themselves to nonviolence is a bit of a novelty. The other issue which I think hasn 't really changed is corruption there 's corruption at almost every level of government there 's corruption in the justice system there 's corruption in the the government-sponsored disaster relief organisations when uh, relief is distributed after uh, natural disasters and so on. And that's a huge problem to overcome. And uh, the reason that I think the Greens have got a good strategy of trying to get people elected first at the local village council level and the municipal level is that there's lesser corruption there. The people who have the money to corruptly get into office aren't that interested in that sort of lowly level so much. But if it comes to elections for provincial governor, well, in this particular province I was in, I was told the present governor has uh, got virtually no hope of getting elected when uh, elections come up next year because uh, his opponent is so corrupt and he's got so much money to spend on the election that he will almost certainly win. And the present governor only got into office. He wasn't elected uh, into office. The one who was elected into office got uh, removed because uh, of the corruption he committed while he was there. People filed complaints and managed to get him uh, barred from office by the courts. It's a rarity f- for that to happen, and, but it did happen in that case. Looking at it nationally, in this sanctuary since the year 2000, there have been three Philippine presidents. The one who's in office now, and I haven't heard much about corruption by him, but he's the, the son of a former president. The two previous ones finished their terms in jail for corruption. So if corruption is bad enough at the national level to get two out of three presidents this century jailed, it's obviously a pretty severe problem. The Greens, it's really avoiding that, I think, by uh, working at the municipal and provincial level. But it's going to be a big problem when it comes to seeking election for higher office than that.
2: And that's Bob Muntz, member of the Australian Greens, speaking about his recent two weeks in the Philippines. That's all I have for today, but um, just one more reminder that in two weeks' time, it's no interviews that week. It's all asking for money, making you feel as if you really, really want to support this radio station for all the wonderful work we do week in, week out, year in, year out. Definitely has to stay. But Jonathan's here, so I'll say goodbye and... Put on a song, and he will be here at 5.30. Okay, bye for now.